So we started Luke 11 a couple weeks ago. We did a short mini-series on the the Lord's Prayer. I'm not going to speak much about that. Um, But what we did do, in a sense, was either remind or recover, restore um, a a biblical view of prayer, which is a God-centered view of prayer. All prayer is God-centered. It's for the hallowing of of His name. And I hope that you were encouraged by it and blessed by it as much as I was preparing and preaching it to you. Now, today in Luke 11, there's a context, in a sense, switch here where there's a different, almost like a different time. Um, And what we see here is Jesus no longer teaching his disciples, and so there's a different audience, right? There's a different crowd to which Jesus is going to be speaking to. Uh, those who Jesus is going to be teaching to. Um, and this particular crowd that is gathered around Jesus, there's this conversation, quote-unquote conversation, that is sparked because of Jesus healing or casting out a demon of a man who was possessed by a demon who couldn't speak, who was, who was mute. Now, I, I told you... Um, a while back now, before summer break, before we took a, a break in Luke before the summer. And, and somewhere in Luke 9 and Luke 10, we, we saw this pinnacle of, of Jesus' ministry, mean, meaning that the highest height of where, where crowds, in a sense, would descend to hear in his popularity. I mean, it was like, it's like everybody loved Jesus. Everybody wanted to hear Jesus. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. Everybody wanted to be healed uh, by Jesus. I mean, at that, at, at that time is when, when Jesus could have started his own megachurch. He could have got his book deal. He could have wrote the best songs and, and hired the best musicians and singers to sing it to his megachurch. He probably could have started his own clothing line. But things at this point, and what we've seen a little bit earlier, things kind of start to turn for Jesus. And, and if you're a church growth consultant or an image specialist, you're, you're looking at Jesus and you're like, don't say that. Oh, please don't say that. Oh, no. Not, ah. Because his popularity and his success started to diminish. Now, now popularity and success, uh, in, in a sense, is... Uh, diminishing is the one that was a a worldly perspective. It's the kind of thing that we desire, right? If we dig down, we want to be liked, we want to be loved, we want people to to know us, and we want people to applaud us, we want people to affirm us, and nowadays it doesn't matter what. We want them to affirm us. And Jesus, though, wasn't about the affirmation of his name, but for the affirmation and glory and the hallowing of his Father's name. So his purpose was for God to be glorified, his Father, and his, his glory would be shown through his obedience and faithfulness to the will of his Father. And as we know, would lead him to the cross, where when he is on the cross, no one is following him. No one's there to listen to him but to watch him die. Now, all that aside, today talks about that hostility, that growing hostility. And, and, and that hostility that we see today is in a, 
is in a growing skepticism, but also we see it in a, in a pretty blatant, slanderous accusation toward, toward Jesus. Now, in this passage today, we're going we're gonna to encounter some, some pretty hard realities that for our 21st century minds are hard to understand and fathom. Right? These aren't realities that are taught at a course at Georgia Southern. These are realities that we only get from the Scriptures. And, and also, Jesus will say some things, once again, that you know, church consultants or church growth consultants and image specialists will go, no, don't say that. And it flies right into the face of our postmodern relativistic age. But deeper than that, and this is where I really want to hone in on, today. Deeper than those things about the demons and things like that and being demon-possessed, which he's going to teach about, is I want us to see, and I think this is what Jesus is also teaching us, something about conversion. What it means to be saved. Yes, demons are going to be there, and he's going to talk a little bit about Satan and how he works, but far deeper than just an education on evil spirits and demons and demon possession and things like that, what he shows us through this crazy gathering is, I think, how the gospel transforms and regenerates a person. Where that power comes from to bring us out of darkness and into marvelous light. So let's look at Luke 11, starting in verse 20, or verse, not 24, verse 14, and we're going to read a pretty big section here. So Luke 11, starting in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the priest of demons. While others, to test him, keep seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace. His goods are safe. But when the stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor and he trusts his divides and his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, 
Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see this inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. So here's the scene. Jesus heals or casts out a demon. Not the first time we've seen this, right? We've seen this go throughout Luke, but this time in this particular incident, we don't, we don't get much about the guy being healed as much as we get about Jesus addressing the crowd. Yet there's something to be said here about the crowd as a whole. They're blinded. They're, they're blinded to the, the grace of God. The, the poor guy who was actually demon-possessed to the point where he was mute, he, he lived in a society where not many people knew how to read and write by, by, by the common man. Not many people knew how to do this. So, so this was a man who was constantly tormented and frustrated to the point where he was enraged and out of control because he had absolutely no means to communicate because he couldn't hear. Or he couldn't speak, I'm sorry. He was a living example. Jesus used this man as a living example to the unregenerate crowd. There were those who marveled, yes, but that doesn't equate regeneration. Amongst the crowd, there are also those who were skeptical, right? They were, they were, they were skeptical. They wanted, they wanted more. They, de- they needed more signs to, to really see if Jesus was from heaven. And then there was those who flat out slandered Jesus, that he was working in cahoots with Satan. Beezebul, also known as Lord of the Flies, So think about the level of blindness here. The hardness of heart to respond in such ways. Not just the the hard heart of of slander, but the hard heart of continual skepticism. This passage is showing us something, what it means to be lost. Not just demon-possessed, but hard hearts toward the Lord, toward God toward Jesus, toward the Holy Spirit, and, and, and toward the gospel. The, the condition of all humanity, no matter their reaction to Jesus, without regeneration of the Holy Spirit, are lost. And what this passage is showing us and illustrating are under the dominion of evil. Also what we see in this passage, again, we've seen it throughout Luke, is the power and authority of Jesus Christ over evil and demons. He is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over all. Right there in verse 14, he casted out the demon. He, and, he, and he cast it out in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very unique way, meaning there's no description of how he casted out that demon. There's no description because there's no elaborate ritual. There's no incantations. There's no repeating the Lord's Prayer. Just simply cast it out, and the demon is gone. The man is free, and he can speak again. And this is the evidence, again, that we see that Jesus is Lord, 
that he's Lord. And over, and of course, this is, this is one of those points that he actually makes in verses 21 and 22 as the strong man. He is the stronger man that, that overcomes. We'll have more about that in just a, in just a few minutes. But, but here is where I want us to go today. I think it's where Jesus is taking us. And that is to reflect on conversion and salvation. And I know that seems odd. Because there's a whole lot here about evil and demons and Satan. But when Jesus responds to the illogical, slanderous accusations, which he does, you know, he points out the, the stupidity of, of what they are saying, and I think he's doing that mercifully, addressing those who are accusing him of such ridiculous things. And, and even response, response to those who are skeptical and demanding more, more signs from heaven. And, and in those things is where he's showing us about conversion. And here's what I mean. I think the, the first thing, and this is going to be the big point of today, is that, um, is that to be a Christian, our hearts must be transformed from the inside out. Con- conversion is not just an outside renovation. But conversion is a transformation that takes place from the inside out. And number two, when we are transformed, that means we will walk with God. Again, meaning conversion has evidence. Conversion has evidence. So here's the first point. Conversion is not an outside renovation. Jesus is going to make it clear. We're going to get there, and and you'll you'll see it. But let me just kind of introduce this point real quick. Following Jesus, becoming a Christian, is not mere external conformity. It's not the outside renovation. Now, whether we know it or not, or even admit it or not, we live in a society, not just in South Georgia, but I think in our country as a whole, that is quite post-Christian. It's post-Christian, right? And we will, we will see that start to roll even here in South Georgia, just like we are seeing it roll throughout our country if the Lord tarries. We're in a post-Christian culture, right? Which means there's a complete casting off of all Christian morality. Completely. I mean, think about the TV shows that you used to watch. I can think about the TV shows I used to watch. And, and every show, I mean, it just didn't matter. Every, every show, even the cartoons that I watch, even, even He-Man had a point to it, had a, a moral point that brought us back and said, you see, kids, you need to be polite to your parents because they really do love you. Don't doubt their love, they love you. I remember He-Man telling me that. And I'm like, no, duh, my parents love me, right? Some kids probably need to hear that. So our, our culture was, was affected and shaped by this, this, in a sense, this popularity of Christian moral ethic that was pervasive in our culture. But that's not the case anymore. The shows that my kids watch for the most part, and they're kind of useless. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
No, they're not that bad. We, we, regu- we regulate, of course. But, but really what most shows show now, and what you'll see even on what used to be called ABC Family, are teenagers living a life that seemingly is, there's no consequences. I can do whatever I want. You fill in the blank. I don't have to tell you what's out there, what's being projected. Now, it, it may sound like I'm, I'm kind of bringing up this thing where we all should pass out stickers that say, and bumper stickers that on the back of our car says, let's, let's bring Jesus back to America, or let's take America back for Jesus. I saw one of those bumper stickers this week. It's, it sounds like that's what I'm saying, but, but it's not. Because even though we had this moral ethic for years, for a couple of generations, the only reason why it was there was because it was popular. It's what America wanted to hear. Culture is shaping media, right? And media is shaping culture. It's, it's what, we wanted to, what we wanted to hear. It was popular, that external conformity to a Christian morality. Now, generally speaking, I'm, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, we, we believe then in the church that, and it might have even started in the church, that, that our, our faithfulness meant that we were to be conformed to those particular moral ethics. That, that that's what shaped us to, to this, this external reality of, of morality. And, and for many, that, that then began to equate, this is what biblical Christianity is. We dress this way when we go to church because God deserves our best. And yet we have hearts. We, we went with hearts. Now we're broken. So it's not the fact that we live in this post-Christian era. I, I think that and all, all that did then, this, this Christian era, in a sense, it, it, all it did was prove to us living this way is how dangerous it was to the church. Those, those moral ethics, although they were, they, were, they were good on some levels, but on other levels, I think it proved to us how dangerous it was for the ter- church. And we still live in an area, and I'm culture, an area where we live today here in, in Georgia, where there is empirical evidence of people who have been seriously wounded by the church because people have heaped unnecessary burdens on them and they called it the gospel. And now they won't step foot in the church. Or, or others who have worked tirelessly to look a Christian but yet have little to no affection for Christ and yet still claim to be a Christian. This is what this passage, I think, is going at today and telling us about what authentic conversion looks like and what it is not. Jesus saves this oppressed man from the demon and he immediately, the response of the crowd is marveling. That's a good response. And many in our culture today, they're going to marvel at Jesus. But that's not enough. That's a good start. And then there was another group that hardened their hearts. And what we will see later in in Luke 11 is that they hardened their hearts with the leaven of the Pharisees. 
the leaven of the Pharisees. And so they slanderously accuse Jesus of, of these great acts being done by the power of Satan. They basically learn from the Rules for Radicals book. How do you discredit somebody and disagree with them? How do you deal with them? You label them. You label them. And if, and if you label them something that everyone doesn't really want to be associated with, then we don't have to take them seriously. Right? We don't have to take them seriously because if he's possessed by the Lord of the Flies, then I don't need to take him seriously at all. Jesus could have walked away from these morons. But in his mercy, he doesn't. And he points out the logic of his of this, and we'll, we'll get to the, my point in just a few minutes, but let's unpack these passages so we understand what's going on. Verse 17, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom is divided against itself, is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Man, do we hear that a lot. We hear that quoted a lot. We hear that in, in politics. We hear that in, in, in politics. But, but Jesus, though, is, is, is pointing out the obvious. Uh, surely you don't think Satan is trying to undermine his own dominion of his own kingdom. Satan casting out Satan? Or Satan giving Jesus the power to cast out Satan? Illogical, stupid, moronic. My words, not Jesus's. Verse 19, he points out something else. If I'm casting out demons by Satan... Who then or by what power is your, ex, your exorcist casting them out? So it was common in that day. They had exorcisms and they had people who specialized in, in that. And, and Jesus isn't um, agreeing with them in a sense. And what they were doing was really what they were, what they were doing. But, but Jesus wasn't, he wasn't commenting on their legitimacy. But what he's saying is, is, why would you accuse me of casting out demons by Satan when you don't accuse your dudes, your people, your sons, by doing the same? Meaning it doesn't make sense. I.e., you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Um, and the reason why it doesn't make sense, and Jesus points this out, is because, by the way, hypocrisy never makes sense. It, it, never, it never adds up. It never equals, equals out. It's bad math. He turns it around on them and he says, now if by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. All right, so not by Satan, but by God. This is the, the evidence he points to, to the kingdom of God is, is here. Right? And he uses this phrase, I love that phrase, the the, the finger of God. And this has Old Testament uh, uh, Exodus imagery here. In Exodus uh, chapter 8, uh, when uh, the third plague of, of gnats is, comes upon Statesboro, I mean Egypt, um, it comes upon, and it just descends upon them. And, and, and Pharaoh, like the last two plagues, goes to, uh, looks at his magicians and says, hey, um, you can do this. And they said, we surely can. This is the finger of God. Can you imagine that? Nats. We're, we're being plagued by something. That is the finger of God of, uh, upon us, and it rains on the righteous and the wrong, apparently. 
but, but also in the, um, the writing of the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone in Exodus 31. It was the finger of God that, that wrote into stone the law of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is that if it looks like the Word of God, if it smells like the Word of God, if it is the Word of God, if it's the work of God, if it talks like the work of God, then his fingerprints are literally all over it. But he's not just addressing the, the slanderers in this, in this remark, but he's also addressing the, those who are, who are skeptic. He's saying, hey, guys, here's your sign. Here's, here's the evidence. Here's the literal fingerprints of God. How else can I cast out demons? Am I sovereign over them or not? Who alone is completely sovereign over demons but God? And if the work of God is being done and the finger of God is evident, then the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come in showing us the power of God and restoring and making all things new. It's restoring, making new and re renewing what should have been. You see, the thing about, about evil and pain and hurt and sickness, we've kind of learned to cope, cope with it in a sense and say, that's just life. That's just the way it is. We're going to hurt, we're going to have pain, we're going to have joys, we're going to have hurts. There's evil, there's sin, there's oppression and injustice. But with the coming of God, Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not it. That, that's not the reality. The reality is what I am doing in restoring the kingdom of God. Death and pain and sickness is not normal. The gospel and the kingdom and the restoring of what Jesus is doing is what is normal. It's what should have been. And they ought to have seen this. And it doesn't stop there. And then he schools them on how demons really work. But here's where we're going to see what I was talking about earlier, the condition of the human heart to, to clean ourselves up on the outside. Verse 21. He introduces us to the strong man. And, and, and this strong man, he, he's not putting down. This strong man's packing heat. He's, his house his palace is secure. His goods are safe. His locks are impenetrable. His gate is strong because he's the strong man. But what does Jesus say, though? Well, before we get ahead, I want to get to it. And this is what Jesus is doing here in this analogy. The strong man in this analogy is He's strong. And he does have dominion over this world. And his possessions are humanity. His things that he is guarding is humanity. Now, he's not saying that everyone who is not in Christ is possessed by a demon, but we are certainly under his dominion. And that's the principle that Jesus is setting, us, setting up before us in relation to demon possession. Or, yeah, demon possession and dominion. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. 
saying the state of man. He says we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But it gets worse. We walked in the course following this world, but it gets worse. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's a description of the strong man. That's a description of the, the, the rule and the authority that that strong man has over humanity. Oh, Paul says, one that we all walked under willingly. So everyone who is not in Christ is under the dominion of the strong man, and the strong man is armed with, with everything. And everything he has under his control are, are there and set to preserve himself. But you've got to love verse 22. There's someone who's stronger. There is someone who is stronger than the previous strong man. And when he attacks, he will overcome because he is stronger. He can't survive when the strong man comes. The stronger man comes. And of course, Jesus is referring to himself. He is, the, he is stronger. And, and, and notice this, this trait about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not on the defensive. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God in the church is not on a defensive. We got the ball. Jesus is not on the defensive. It's going forth. It's destroying the fortifications of evil in hearts all around the world, including our own. And doesn't it feel so much sometimes we're just on the defensive? I'm always worried about my sin and fighting it back and pushing back the world. And that just gets so tiring that it feels like I can't go on. But this passage tells us that Jesus is on the offensive. And the casting out the demon, isn't that showing us there's an offense? There's Jesus is on the offensive. And that he is the one who is stronger? Right? The strong man had this guy in his mind, in his, his clutches. He couldn't let him go. God couldn't speak. He was miserable. But here came the strong man. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his Son to set liberty the captives, to which the gates of hell will not prevail. But what it teaches us about us, humanity needs rescuing. And without the stronger man, we're under the dominion of the, the strong man, the little man. We need rescuing. In verse 23, Jesus, like Anakin Skywalker, speaks in absolutes. Now, you, you don't think, by the way, this is just not even in here. We love Star Wars. I like Star Wars. But you don't think Star Wars grabbed onto something in the culture when we knew the good guy was Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ben Kenobi, yeah, named after me. We knew him, the good guy, and yet here is this picture of evil saying, whoever is not for me is against me. And the good guy says, only a Sith speaks in absolutes. 
postmodern, relativistic age is what Star Wars cl clinged onto there in the early 2000s. That's all, the, that's all Star Wars is about. It's just a, a picture of how things are changing philosophically in, in, our, in our world. That's, that's for free. But here's Jesus speaking in absolutes. We don't want to hear this. Whoever is not against me, or whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And, and here's what I, I think he's showing us here. I think he's showing us here, well, he's cutting to the heart. He, he's cutting to the heart. Because no matter how good it feels to be able to control our outward ability to make ourselves look good, Jesus is saying, there's no middle road. You're either with me, meaning I've set you free, or you're still in the palace of the other strong man. There are those who are with him, and there are those who are against him. There are those who have been liberated by him, and there are those who have not been liberated with him. There are two categories in this world. There's no middle ground, no matter how good a person looks or has acted or lived. There's no middle ground. And, and I think in these next passages, 24 through 26, kind of that weird description there about demons there, I think Jesus is kind of explaining that middle ground and how we can get entrapped in that middle ground. Let me show you. Look, look at verses 24 to 26 again, and you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. And, and this is going to really drive home the point that I want to say this morning. Or at least this first point. I told you the first point was going to be a whole lot heavier than the second. The first thing is this. We, we see this in this passage. The first thing is that it is possible for a demonic spirit to leave a person on its own. That's what it says. To, to leave on its own accord. It says, passing through waterless places seeking rest. And second, it is able to decide to go back to where it came from and retake possession of their palace, or their home. Again, the home, the palace, or the home here is the human heart. Now, there are many implications we can draw from this text. We can kind of speculate some things from this passage and it probably wouldn't be helpful to try to apply some of these speculations. But what certainly what Jesus is showing here is the scary reality of how evil is actively working to destroy us. He's actively working to destroy us. Because what happens when the Spirit comes back? And says when he comes back, he's going to find the house swept and put into order. And what does that mean? That means this person has tried to turn over a new light, leaf with his life or her life. You know, have a, a fresh new start, move to a new place, clean up their act, right? Clean, clean up their act, find new, new friends, move to a, a, a new place, join help groups. They do everything that they can to, to stay clean, to stay dry. And so they clean their life up, sweeping it out diligently, cleaning it up, cleaning it up, getting rid of everything. But what happens? What does Jesus say? Lydia, Suzanne, look at me. Stay in your seat. Yes, sir? Look at me. Yes, sir. 
she's learning. What happens when the demon comes back? Despite all the cleaning, it's worse. Seven more show up. Right? Because there's plenty of room now. They've cleaned this junk up. We got room. We're, we're squatting. We're taking over. So what happens? They move in because the heart is not transformed. The heart is still just empty. Sure, it's, it's clean, but it's empty. So, so the outcome is what? Worse than before. They come and they dwell and they take over the person. And, and this is how demonic oppression and possession works. In our, in our, like I said, in our hard minds, hard to understand, it's hard to, hard to grasp, but this is broadly, though, it shows us as well how Satan and evil is, is operating. Because when we think that we can renovate ourselves, sweep our lives up, and cleaning up, the outcome is far dangerous than before. Here's what J.C. Ryle said commenting on this passage. He said, how dangerous it is to be content with any change in religion short of thorough conversion with God. He describes him entering once more with seven spirits worse than himself, and he winds up all with a solemn saying, the last state of that man was worse than the first. We must feel in reading these fearful words that Jesus is speaking of things which we can't, which we faintly comprehend. Amen. Right? We faintly comprehend this. And yet he is lifting the corner of the veil which hangs over the unseen world, isn't he? He's kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit. Let us see how things are working. His words, no doubt, illustrate things which existed in the Jewish nation during his own time in ministry, but in the main lesson of his words concern us. It is the danger of our own souls. There is a solemn warning to us here. Never be satisfied with religious reformation without heart conversion. We must never be satisfied with religious reformation without heart conversion. In our religious culture, we have become satisfied. And I'm not trying to implicate too much of us. But as a whole, we can remember that we have become satisfied with the sweeping and the cleaning of our homes, the painting of the exteriors of our hearts, and then calling ourselves Christians. We've done something. We even prayed something. We joined a church. We taught Sunday school. We became something else. Maybe we were even leaders. And yet regard lacked heart transformation, heart conversion, Here's why. We've been sold a gospel that is more about what we do than about trusting in what Jesus has done. The conversion of our hearts, gospel transformation, regeneration, and renovation is something that happens first in the inside. And where the stronger man, big S, where he does his work is in the inside. That's why the strong man's gates and arms are 
faultless and faulty because Jesus operates in the inside. Jesus operates on the inside where our hearts are through the work of the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith. And this is why Paul prayed in in Ephesians 3. He said that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with the power through his Holy Spirit, your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, Jesus Christ indwells in our hearts by faith, and by his grace he is making us new. If we try to sweep and clean up our lives outside of the indwelling of the Spirit of of Christ, then the outcome is dangerous. The outcome is deadly. And yet this is what has been so pervasive. We must not believe the, the lie. And, and, and this morning we must inspect our hearts and test our salvation. Are you relying on how you can sweep? Or are you relying on how Jesus has transformed? Are you relying on Jesus' work on the cross? and the work of the Holy Spirit. I'll finish this point by continuing what Ryle says. He says, There is no safety except in conversion. In thorough Christianity, to lay aside open sin is nothing unless grace reigns in our hearts. The house must not only be swept and whitewashed, a new tenant must be introduced or else the leprosy may again appear on its walls. The outward life must not, be, not, must not only be garnished with the formal trappings of religion, the power of vital religion must be experienced in the inner man. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. We must not only be moralized, but spiritualized. We must not only be reformed, but born again. Jesus is teaching us that conversion is more than mere external moral renovation. It's a heart which has been changed and transformed and softened and given new and external life by the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the second point, it's going to be much shorter, that was heavy. So the first Conversion is not mere outside renovation. But it's a work of the gospel that transforms us from the inside out. But secondly, conversion does have real evidence. Conversion does have real evidence of that, that transformation. It, it does have evidence of, of that r- regeneration. Now, up to this point, right, so the, you know, Jesus had the, the, the conversation back to those guys, which, by the way, I don't think that they really accused him directly to his face. They kind of tweeted it. And then Jesus, knowing their thoughts or knowing their Twitter feed, went after them, right? And, 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 and so there's kind of this, for me, I just kind of watch, you know, in my mind, I watch it, and, and, and it's, it's kind of like this awkward tension moment in this crowd. 
I think Jesus is kind of like, all right, who's going to think something else stupid, right? Well, it kind of comes that way. Um, in verse 27, right, the crowd kind of goes quiet. And, and, and then there's this, this woman who says something to maybe break that awkward tension. Now, I, I know you, you all don't give too many amens to me, and, and I don't take that to heart. You know, I'm not counting them and wondering. But, but I have been a part of like some churches and con- like services and conferences where, where the timing of the amens by the crowd have just been terrible. I remember one time, at, I don't know, I think it was a conference, where it was like one person out of like, you know, 5,000 people who amen really loud at this point that the preacher was saying, and even the preacher was like aghast, like, like, dude, that's not the point you amen. That's the point you like, you weep and you, you, you tear your clothes and you put on sackcloth and ashes kind of thing. And they were just aghast, like, like, what? I'm glad I'm not that dude's pastor kind of thing. And, and I think this is kind of that situation a little bit. Where we kind of get this awkward amen with some awkward words. At least for us, they're awkward, awkward words, right? And she yells out, blessed is the woman, or blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Kind of a weird thing to say. Y'all don't have to say that. Amens are fine. The Lord leads you. But, but really, she's complimenting, she's complimenting Jesus. She's not turning Mary into her own little God. But she's, she's actually complimenting Jesus in his wisdom and his words. Remember, there was a part of the crowd that was marveling there. And, and what she was saying was, was, basically, your mom must be proud that she's your mama. She, she must be proud that she is your mama. You know, and, and we know that, that Jesus kind of affirms her in sense in, 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 in this compliment because he doesn't rebuke her. He says, blessed rather. He kind of adds to it, right? He adds to He says, yeah, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. But in a sense, he's also agreeing because here's the word of God and keep it is what Mary did. Mary heard the words of the Lord in, in, in quite an audacious way. Like, a, a way that's stunning, that no one's going to believe. And then she was going to have something happen to her that has never happened before. And yet, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She heard the word and she kept it. Doesn't matter how I feel, what I want for my life, what my plans are, or what even seems impossible. She heard the word of the Lord and did it. So you see the point that Jesus is saying here, though? That there's evidences of conversion, the transformed life where the strong man has set us free and the Holy Spirit indwells. Then there will be evidences of that grace. There will be transformed desires. Transformed desires to hear the word of God and then to keep it. And, and that is truly the evidence that we see of every heart that has been converted. It loves the Word of God. It's always open to the Word of God. 
It's always willing to submit itself under the authority of the Word of God and do whatever it says. That's the evidence of conversion that we hear and we obey God's Word. We've sang it in a song. I don't think we've sang it here, but we've sang it in songs most of us have. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, when it came down to it with that song for me, I, I never really liked that song. I never have. And, and it's not because that, 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 this isn't the reason why we don't sing it. Just, we just don't sing it yet. Um, I, never, I never liked it. Because I didn't like the idea that my happiness was being linked to my trusting and obedience. Because then it meant something that I had to do. And and then as I grow and mature, and I think this is what the gospel teaches us, right? This is what the Bible is teaching us, is that that I realized this as I was looking at it backwards. The the way that I was supposed to to delight, to to be happy, as as what Jesus says, to to be blessed, blessed is, was to be blessed that it was by His grace first that saved me, that has transformed me and has renovated me from the inside out, that He has come into my life, that He is taking up residence in my life, that He has given me a, a, a new heart and a new spirit, and now I can trust and obey. And now I can be happy all the day. I was backwards, and joy was hard to come by. But, but now, because of Jesus, find joy. That trusting and obeying more and more is just more and more evidence to me that the work of the Holy Spirit in my life that he has done in transfer, uh, 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 transforming me from the inside out. And the same goes for you. They are evidences of the conversion that we have been given. What's the gospel that bears this converting power in our hearts? And it bears the converting power that, that changes us and makes our, 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 our lives new from the inside out. So we're not just people who have just cleaned up ourselves a bit, did some sweeping around, ooh, there's some cobwebs, better clean that up. But we are people who have a new occupant in our souls. We're not, we're not left empty, but we are, we are left full now with the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God lives and dwells, there is liberty. And there's new desires and new affections. We love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. We want to live in such a way that we show joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. And why do we do that? Because the strong man has come. And he has set us free from the weakly strong man who once had dominion over our lives. And that categorically changes us. It changes everything. It changes the trajectory of our lives completely. Christianity isn't something that we just add to our lives. It changes our lives. 
It becomes the very definition of our lives. It becomes the very identity of our life. The church in Antioch was first to be called Christians. Gentiles, (laughs) mostly, were called Christians because their lives reflected that gospel transformation. And it means little Christs, little anointed ones, little bends. Let's pray. I just thought of it. That, that's going to make no sense to the podcast. If people listen, I don't think people listen. Maybe the three people that stumble upon it, they're not going to understand what that means. But let's pray. Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. Thank you for showing us again that He is stronger. I am weak, and I am more than happy to say that. Freely admit that. He is the strong man and has set me free from the captives. And Lord, we proclaim that as your people this morning. We rejoice in that. We worship and praise his name and his name alone because he is stronger. Oh, Father, would you lead us away from the lies of the world, the lies of popular religion that is so pervasive that tells us to sweep ourselves up more so that we would be accepted. Help us to not let go of the gospel that tells us that we are accepted not because of us, because of what Jesus has done. His overcoming. And and let that be the grace then, O Lord, that that drives this grace obedience of trusting and obeying, hearing and obeying. We pray these things for your glory and for our blessing and joy. Amen.